to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to skip around a little bit because we there's some key texts here that we haven't been reminded of for a few weeks. And so read with me verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip to verse 6, and then we'll pick up at verse 13 through 22. If you weren't following there, let me say that again. Verses 1 and 2, and then we'll jump to verse 6. And then the text for this morning, verses 13 through 22. Hebrews 11, verses 1 and 2. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the proof of things not seen, for by it men of old gained approval. Verse 6. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Verse 13, all these men that he just described died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. God is not to be is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of his sons, each of the sons of Joseph in worship, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. These past weeks, we've been learning what it means to live by faith. As the author of Hebrews has explained it in verse 6, for without faith it is impossible to please him. So it's pretty important that we learn to live by faith because we cannot please God, whom we say we trust and love. We cannot please him unless we live by faith. And then he adds the additional clarification or explanation For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. And so, by way of review, we may ask, well then, if we are called to live by faith, what is faith? Well, faith, according to verse 1, is the substance of things hoped for, the proof or conviction of things not seen. Now, along the way, we have also learned that the object of such faith, or what we are to believe in, we're called to live by faith, we're called to believe in something. Lord, what do you want us to believe in? Along the way, we've learned that the object of our faith, what we are to believe in, consists of the promises that God has made. The fulfillment of his promises is, listen, the fulfillment of his promises is what we hope for and is what we have not seen. That's why all of these men in faith died without receiving the promises. They believed in the promises all the way to the end of their life.
And when our hope is in these promises, God, the text says, when our hope, when we are living and making decisions of the mundane decisions about whether we eat or whether we drink or who our friends are or where we worship or what job we have or who we marry or what school we go to, all of those mundane decisions of life, when we are making those decisions based on the promises of God for us, then we are living by faith. We are living by faith. And God is pleased with us. Or, to say it in the way that the author of Hebrews actually said it, it's like this. God, if you live by faith in this way, God is not ashamed to be called your God. Now, to bring it all together, living by faith simply means that rather than following Rather than allowing our lives to be led and to be governed by the desires of the flesh or the currents of our culture, we rather govern govern our lives according to the promises of God. Now someone may say, I thought we were to govern our lives according to the commands of God. That is true. But his commands are not burdensome, right? Why are his commands not a burden to his people? Here's why. Because with every command, there are ten promises. This, beloved, is the distinguishing mark that separates true believers from unbelievers. Those who belong to God strive to be governed by the promises of God. And furthermore, we have discovered that governing our lives by God's promises is the very thing that brings us security, peace, and courage, just to mention three. It brings us security, peace, and courage. It fills our souls with security and with peace and with courage when the circumstances of this life seem terribly uncertain. It's no secret that we're living in uncertain times, right? And some of you are feeling like those of you who are heads of households, perhaps, that you've never felt as uncertain about the future as you do today. With the fairly drastic changes in our economy lately, many of us are feeling the increasing weight of economic uncertainties. And we find ourselves perhaps asking, how long will it be before gas prices force us to make radical changes in the way we live and what we drive or pedal I am now riding my bike, many of you know this, I ride my bike to work twice a week. My motto is this, it's real spiritual, save gas, burn fat. (laughs) Works for me. And how will this affect my job? How will I be able to continue paying the mortgage? If I can't pay the mortgage, what then? Where will I live? How will I feed my family? You can do yourself great harm if you go down that road too far. And then there are the political and geopolitical uncertainties. What will happen to our country after the November elections? Will the war in Iraq ever end? What will Iran do if they ever are able to build a nuclear weapon? And how will Israel respond? And what will that do to the cohesiveness and the general sense of peace among the world powers? Will it mean war? And then there are health uncertainties many of you have faced in the past week or month, and a plethora of you have faced in the past year. And there are Social Security uncertainties. What's going to happen to that? Not only that, but there are significant relational insecurities. 
And how are we to keep our bearings while living in such uncertain times? How do you face the uncertainties of life? Now, the answer is found, listen, the answer is found in the promises of God. And no one understood that better than Abraham. No one understood that better than Abraham. And that's why the New Testament writers keep going back to him and back to him and back to him to teach us about faith. And so there are three things the author would have us observe in verses 17 through 19. I fully intended to go to verse 22, but I knew you wouldn't stay with me through lunch. So we will not make it that far. We'll get through verse 19, Lord willing. There are three things the author would have us observe. I trust that I will derive from the text in verses 17 through 19 about the faith of Abraham. Truths that you and I should learn if we are going to stand firmly against the uncertainties of life. And so number one, if you're taking notes, and by the way, I would suggest there are things in this message I really, I think the Holy Spirit really wants some of you to hear. If taking notes distracts you, you can download my entire manuscript on the, on the web probably this Tuesday. Um, and you'll see everything that I intended to say. And you'll say, wow, you didn't intend to say nearly as much as you said. And that's true. But point number one, the test of Abraham's faith, the test of Abraham's faith. Verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. The word for tested here means to examine. To examine. It's as if God was saying, now, Abraham, let's have a closer look at this faith of yours. What's it really made of? I promised you a son, and now you have him. In fact, you've had him for a significant period of time, and you've been enjoying the reward of that promise for a number of years. Now, I wonder, I wonder what your hope for the future is anchored in now. Is your hope for the future anchored in me, or is it anchored in your son? So travel back with me in time now as we return to the book of Genesis once again to see this event in living color. Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Let me say it again, and then I'm going to start reading. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. When you get there, try to catch up with me. Here we go. Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offerings, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. And so the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, in the Greek it's, Abi, Daddy, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? 
And Abraham said, God will provide. God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together, and they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham! Abraham! And he said, Here I am. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Do not stretch out your hand against this lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. And behold, Behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for the burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord, our provider. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Beloved, it is one thing to say that we trust God. James made it very clear. If a man says he has faith, if a man says he has faith, oh, it's so easy to say that we have faith. It's quite another thing to obey God when His revealed will doesn't make sense. How do you trust God when what He's telling you to do seems to sabotage the very promise your hope is anchored to? How do you trust Him then? How do you trust God when what His Word says that you must do appears to be sabotaging your joy, your security, your hope, your plans for the future that you believe are God-honoring and biblical, all things considered. In verse 17 of Hebrews 11, it hits the nail squarely on the head. Leave your finger in Genesis. We're going to be flipping back and forth, mainly in Hebrews 11 now. Verse 17 really hits the nail squarely on the head when it says, He who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Now, isn't that an interesting turn of a phrase? Why is Isaac called Abraham's only begotten son? This was not, I mean, this was emphatically not Abraham's only son. Abraham had another son through another woman through Sarah's handmaid, and that, ch- that child, that son, was named Ishmael. And yet, God refers to him as his only begotten son. Why? This is why. Isaac is called only begotten because he alone was the son of promise. He was the son God promised to give Abraham, and he was the son through whom the other promises that God gave Abraham would come through. The promises of future grace could not come any other way than through the promised son, Isaac. There was no contingency plan. Should Isaac meet some tragic, unexpected fate and die, There was no contingency. He was the only one. He was the promised son, the only begotten son. But now God was commanding Abraham to kill his only begotten son. Think about this. God just told Abraham 
to take his son, to tie his hands, throw him on the altar, stab him in the heart, and burn his dead body. I suspect it was all Abraham could do to keep himself from convulsing with anguish over the weight of what God had commanded him to do. I don't think he slept that night. And that's the way it is with some of us. Perhaps all of us, sometimes. On occasions we walk through this life pursuing our own happiness and the glory of God. And I suspect it was all part of God's plan that whatever it is we're pursuing our joy and the glory of God, that they would be the same thing and they would be biblical to the best of our ability. But on occasion... As we walk through this life pursuing our own happiness and the glory of God, we find ourselves in situations where we realize that the things that make us happy, the very thing that is making us happy in this moment is the thing that God wants to take away. It may be a career that you have enjoyed for years, one that God has blessed you in No uncertain terms, but now you find yourselves at a crossroad. Now the job God has given is suddenly standing crossways with the word he has written. You don't want to quit. You had plans for a bright future there, but God is making it clear to you that if you are going going to obey, then you can no longer stay. What will you do? Will your logic trump God's revelation? God, this doesn't make any sense. You gave me this job. You have blessed me in this job. I have a ministry in this place of employment. I must be reading this wrong. Maybe I don't understand the circumstances that I think I see in this job. And yet in reality, it's abundantly clear that what is happening on your job is forcing you to violate God's word. Will you obey in faith? Or perhaps it's not a career, perhaps it's a relationship. You've always read in the Bible what a blessed reward marriage is, and you long for the comforts and security that such a covenant relationship will bring. In fact, not long ago, Prince Charming suddenly appeared in your life and You've been convinced that he's God's man. The problem is, in the past month or so, it has become obvious that his first love is something other than the God you love. And his life is showing clear signs of unbelief. It feels like a knife is piercing your heart every time you think of it. But you know God wants you to give him up. What will you do? Will your logic trump God's revelation? Or will you obey in faith? Perhaps it's not a career or a relationship. Perhaps it's just the comfort of living in a prosperous nation with a good job and a comfortable home in an established neighborhood. You know God said that he has given all things for his children to enjoy. And you've been enjoying it. You've been enjoying it to the full within biblical parameters. And you believe God is glorified in that. Praise the Lord. Nothing wrong with that. But perhaps you heard a message a few weeks ago from a visiting missionary. And God used his word to pierce your heart with the conviction that he wants you. Yes, you. To be one of the few whom he calls to give it all up and move to a foreign land to take the gospel to the nations. What will you do? Abraham had an issue that was far less ambiguous than any of the scenarios I just painted. And I suspect many of you right now are saying, I've got a different one in mind. And it fits. 
But Abraham was, his situation was far less clear. The promise that he had about Isaac came directly from the mouth of God. That a son would be given him and through him would come a great people too numerous to count. And sure enough, the son was given in a miraculous way. But now God was commanding Abraham to kill the son of promise. But Isaac was the sole link. Listen, Isaac was the sole link between Abraham and the fulfillment of God's promise. What will see the test this is the test of abraham's faith and so the first thing the author would have us see is that test but there's a second thing notice the anchor of abraham's faith the anchor of abraham's faith verses 18 and 19 it was he to whom it was said That is, it was to Abraham to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. And he, that is Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Now there are two things here worthy of note. Verse 18 is the recitation of God's promise. I take this to imply that Abraham recalled to his mind the promise that God had made. Abraham was calling, recalling to his mind God's promise to him that God had repeated again and again and again to him. And he's about to repeat again. In no uncertain terms and in a repetitive manner over a period of several years, God had said these words, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. The only hope that the promise of descendants could be fulfilled is that Isaac would be alive to father children. If there is no Isaac, the promise is dead. And God is a liar. And so God's word had promised. And Isaac was the fulfillment of that promise. This much Abraham knew. And if you're going to live stably, securely, with courage and boldness and peace in the face of uncertain circumstances in your life. You need these promises that we are memorizing together. You need to recall them to your mind as Abraham did. He didn't know much. And perhaps in the emotion of it all, as sometimes happens to us, we get all scrambled up and we don't know What in the world to think? All we can think is this hurts and I'm confused. But Abraham knew this. God's word had promised. And Isaac was the fulfillment of that promise. The second notice, he chose to believe that God would be faithful to his promise, even if it took an unprecedented miracle to pull it off. Abraham believed something about the character of God. Abraham believed something about the character of God, namely this. God cannot, not just will not, God cannot lie. He who promised is faithful. He who promised is faithful. And Spurgeon said, in these darkest hours when you can't see God's hand, you must trust His heart. You must trust his promises. And so Abraham didn't have a lot to go on, but he had enough. And so this is what the text says. Based on that, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Now, why is that significant? Because there is no record previous to Abraham that God raised anybody from the dead. The word considered here is important. The word consider means to reckon, to reckon, or to form an opinion by calculating or reasoning. The Greek word here is logizomai. It is that from which we get the English word logarithm. 
It means to calculate or to compute. Whenever you see Paul in the New Testament, especially in Romans, talking about reckoning ourselves or reckoning this or that about God or ourselves or sin or whatever, this is the word like gizomai. It means to calculate, to reckon, to reason, to compute. The idea is that Abraham did not take his son to the altar in blind faith. He didn't take his son to the altar in blind faith. Rather, using the logic of heaven, he reasoned that since God had promised and since it is impossible for God to lie and since God is commanding him to kill the only son of promise, then God must intend to raise him from the dead. That's the only conclusion I can come up with. God must intend to raise him. Ever wondered why the New Testament authors always go back to Abraham to teach us about faith? Now, granted, in your particular situation, your attempts to calculate what God might be planning in your life might be coming up with a big blank, a big goose egg, a big zero without the rim. You may have nothing. You're trying to add up this calculation, and it's far too complex. And you're saying, Lord, I never was good at math. And I'm not good at figuring this out. I have no idea what good could come out of this. If I obey you, it's going to hurt. And I'm going to lose. And at that moment, you must ask yourself, but will I trust the God who cannot lie? Who has made to me many magnificent promises? You have no idea in the world how it could be that giving up this thing or this person that you have come to love and enjoy could possibly result in anything good. But may I suggest you do have the most important parts of the equation. You don't have what comes after equals, but you do have the this plus that. And here's the equation. A. God. Who cannot lie. This much I know. And B. You have a book of promises. That cannot fail. I have a God who cannot lie. And I have a book of promises. That cannot fail. For example. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Sound like a promise? When was the last time you clung to that? Like a rock in a raging river. Or how about this one? That was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. How about this one? Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. You can't even fathom what they are, but He knows, and He has a plan. Psalm 37, 4. Or how about this one? And this is one I go back to frequently because I have a, a very small mind, and I need short, pithy promises And here's the one that I fall back on all the time. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Proverbs 18.10. Or how about this one I mentioned last week or the week before? Psalm 84, verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. Here we go. You can say it with me if you know it. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I have a God who cannot lie. And I have a book of promises that cannot fail. So Lord, bring it on. I trust you. I trust you. Beloved, you have a God who cannot lie. And you have a book of promises that cannot fail. And God intends that these promises be for you so many immovable anchors that will keep your soul secure and at peace and courageous as you face the uncertainties of life. 
These are not just for us to dissect and to break apart into its bits, its jots and tittles, and to analyze them and to talk about the tense and the voice and the mood and feel wise and full of knowledge and pride. These are the promises of the God of the unexpected who does not have to tell us the end. He only has chosen to give us reasons why we should trust Him as we move toward that end, whatever that end may be. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear. Why? Because I have a promise. For He is with me. His rod and His staff. What's the next word? Comfort me. Beloved, do not think God has set you in a boat and pushed you out into a stormy sea to fare for yourself alone. No, for it is He who has ordained the stormy sea that you can be sure that He has also filled your boat with all the ballast it needs to keep it upright and secure. Such are the weighty promises of God's word. They are meant to sit heavily upon the bottom of your boat so that no matter how great the wind or how great the waves, you will tread securely until the Lord himself approaches you on the waves and he whispers to you and to that circumstance, peace, be still. My children and I love to rock climb. I refer back to illustrations. There's so many of them. I don't think I'm in danger of repeating them very often. Here's one I haven't shared with you before, and I meant to bring up a piece of equipment. It's called a quick draw. It doesn't have anything to do with McGraw. <laughs> quick draw is two carabiners tied together with a piece of very, very, very strong webbing. Very thin but very, very, very strong. You cannot break it. You can hang your car from it, and it would not break. And there's a certain kind of climbing called sport climbing or lead climbing. And the way it works is we normally do top rope climbing because it's very secure. You secure the rope to the top of the cliff, and that way when you climb, the anchor is always above you so that you can never fall. Uh, when we talk about climbing and we talk about the safety of it, that's why it's safe. No one really ever falls when they climb with us when we're top roping because the rope is always pulling upward. If you have a good belay person on the bottom, that's not part of the illustration. But it's always pulling upward and you cannot fall. But there's another kind of climbing. And this kind of climbing, lead climbing, and you, you have on your harness, on the back of your harness, you have... A whole string of these, you, you clamp them onto the back of your harness, and that you may have 10 or 12, depending on how many you can afford and how high the cliff is. And in the cliff, there are anchors that are put in like this. One will be here, and then 10 feet up or 8 feet up, there'll be one there, and then there'll be another one there, and another one there. The deal is, though, you have to climb up to the first anchor without a rope. And then you hook in, and you put your rope through that. And then you climb to the next anchor, and you hook in. You put your rope on it. You climb up to the next one. Now, if you fall, and you can fall, if you fall, you will fall how far? You will fall until that anchor, the slack in the rope, catches that anchor, and it goes secure. Every time you're hooking to another anchor, you are that much more secure. That much more secure. And you see these guys, and we don't do much of this because it is a little bit dangerous. But we've been out there doing this, and we've seen guys way up high. And they're saying, the rock is breaking, I'm not sure about this. And I'm thinking, why are you continuing? Why do you continue to climb? That's foolishness. You're in danger. And yet they go again. 
And they go again. And they go again. And they try again and again and again. And we've seen them fall and fall and fall. And whip themselves around and climb back up and fall. And they only fall about 10 feet. And then they climb back up again. Why are they not terrified? Here's the answer. Their hope is built on nothing less than the anchors that are stuck probably two feet into the rock of that wall. They will never come out. They will never, ever fail. And so they don't have any concern about that. They're concerned about minor abrasions. They're concerned about conking their head maybe on the rock. But they are not concerned about the anchor failing. And so they can go as high as the cliff is high. They can take whatever risk they want to risk. They can hang out upside down if that's the, the kind of rock they're on. doesn't matter. If they fall, there ain't no way that anchor is going to fail. And that's the way it is with God's promise. We have a God who cannot lie. And we have a book full of promises that cannot fail. That's how we can face the uncertainties of life. The Genesis account says, I got off my notes here. Let me go back. Abraham's faith was sorely tested by the command of God, but Abraham's faith was securely anchored. In the promises of God. Now third, Abraham was not only tested, his faith was not only tested and anchored, it was also rewarded. It was rewarded. Look at verse 19. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. As far as God was concerned, listen, as far as God was concerned, Abraham really did offer Isaac on the altar that day. When it says in verse 17 that he offered up Isaac, the Greek tense there is in the perfect, if that means something to you. And that indicates that it was an action completed in the past. He offered it. In God's mind, it was done. In other words, the sacrifice actually took place as far as Abraham's resolve and obedience and faith were concerned. The boy was as good as dead. He fully intended to drive that knife through his heart. From Abraham's perspective, this son of promise was dead. But it was not God's will to take that boy's life. The Genesis account says, just as Abraham stretched out his hand to slay his son, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, saying, Abraham, Abraham, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear, just insert the word, believe, trust God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Beloved, meet a man, meet a man who learned in more profound and stunning ways than we can ever imagine that God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Meet a man whose experience was the joyful reality that no good thing does God withhold from those who walk uprightly. Meet a man who chose to be ruled by the promises of God rather than the promises of the flesh and because of it feasted on the sweet fruit of God's reward. And notice with me, flip back to Genesis 22, verse 15. This is after the fact. We're just picking up with the next verse here. Verse 15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on which is the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice that's faith that's faith and faith always comes first with God's command 
And then a reason why we should obey. It's not just a totalitarian command. It is a command with reasons, with promises. And not only with promises, but with reward, the fulfillment of those promises. Truly, beloved, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that God has promised for those who love him and those who trust in his promises. And before we conclude, notice that the author says at the end of verse 19 that Abraham received Isaac back as a type. Now this may mean that he received him back from the dead in a figurative sense. But then again, the author of Hebrews may mean that he received him back as a type or a picture of the future resurrection of Jesus Christ. The word for type here is interesting. And you know this word, parabole. You know what that translated in English? Parable. Abraham received back his son from the dead as a parable. Could it be that in the mystery of God's timeless, inscrutable sovereignty, that he intended this event to point us to the substitutionary death and resurrection of Christ? Consider these parallels. Are you ready for this? Just close your notes and think. Like Isaac, Jesus' birth was long promised. And expected. Like Isaac, Jesus' birth was an unambiguous miracle. Like Isaac, Jesus was a son of Abraham. Like Isaac, Jesus was an only begotten son. Like Isaac, Jesus was the heir of God's promise. Like Isaac, Jesus carried the wood of his own sacrifice. Like Isaac, Jesus was offered on a mountain, and it was perhaps the very same mountain where Isaac was laid on the altar. Like Isaac, Jesus was offered at the direct command of God. Like Isaac, Jesus was offered by his own father. Like Isaac, Jesus was raised from the dead. Like Isaac, Jesus was delivered on the third day. And like Isaac, Jesus returned to his father's house. Now I ask you, what does he mean by Isaac, resurrection was a parable? Only God could do this. Only God could do this. Only the sovereign God of the universe could write the perfect parable of a story that would not occur for, in reality for another 2,000 years. What, beloved, what a God we serve. Beloved, whatever the uncertainties you may be facing today, know this. You belong to a God who cannot lie. And He has given you a book full of promises that cannot fail. And listen, God wants you to come to Him with His promises. I want to read to you what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He wrote these words, God's promises... We're never meant to be thrown away as waste paper. He intended that they should be used. Nothing pleases the Lord better than to see his promises put in circulation. He loves to see his children bring them up to him and say, Lord, do as you promised. We glorify God when we plead his promises. Do not think that you will be, that God will be any poorer for giving you the riches that he has promised. And do you dream that he will be any less holy for giving you his holiness? Do you imagine that he will be any less pure for washing you from your sins? He has said, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be whiter than snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Beloved, Spurgeon says, faith faith embraces the promises of pardon. It does not delay saying, this is a precious promise. I wonder if it is true. But rather, it goes straight to the throne of grace with it and pleads, Lord, here is the promise. Do as you promised. And our God replies, be it unto you as you will. 
when a Christian grasps the promise but doesn't take it to God, then God is dishonored. But when one hastens to the throne of grace, saying, Lord, I have nothing to recommend me but this, you have said it, then the desire will be granted. Our heavenly banker delights to cash his own notes. Never let the promise rust. Draw the word of promise out of its sheath and use it with holy violence. Don't think that God will be troubled by your importunity, reminding him of his promises. He loves to hear the loud outcries of needy souls. It is his delight to give favors. It is He is more ready to hear than you are ready to ask. It is God's nature to keep His promises. Therefore, go at once to the throne of grace and say, Lord, do as you promised. That is our hope. That is our security. That is our courage. And that is all we need to face the uncertainties of life. The promises of God are like immovable anchors that embolden courage and security and peace for believers living in uncertain times. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Oh, God, thank you for being so kind to us. When we were dead in our transgressions and sins. And with all of these similarities between your son and Isaac, yet there is a great difference. Because you did not spare your own son. You crushed your son. And all of our stripes were laid on Him. He is our substitute. God, praise You. Praise You for the promise of saving grace. Praise You for the promise of forgiveness of sins. Praise You for the promise of sanctifying grace. Praise you for the promise that you will always be for us the God of the unexpected, doing things that we can never imagine in the heat of the moment, but find in the end that you have been abundantly faithful. Oh, Father, make us these kind of people. And may you be glorified, and we, may we know the joy of glorifying you by faith. For we pray it in Jesus' name.